About 20 years ago, back when people were still flying with abandon, Virgin Atlantic launched its upper class with really cute salt and pepper shakers named Orville and Wilbur. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about enrollment and enforcement. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. This is for the storytellers, the writers and filmmakers who feel called to depict the future in their fiction. I know it's exciting to show how things might fall apart, but human beings have a habit of living into what they expect. You can't ask people to desire things they can't imagine. If all society imagines is dystopia, they'll patiently accept it when the chance arrives. So instead of provoking horror shows, consider using your art to give the world better ideas. Thanks for what you do, and good luck. Shortly after the cute plain-shaped salt and pepper shakers were delighting the, quote, upper-class passengers on Virgin Atlantic, Wired Magazine wrote an article about them and talked about how cool they were and how great it would be to steal a set. Well, shortly thereafter, the thefts began to rise, and Richard Branson became annoyed at how much money he was losing when these metal salt and pepper shakers kept disappearing. In that moment, he had a choice to make. He could go for enforcement. You may have seen this on planes back when they used to hand out tablets to watch movies on. You basically had to give up your driver's license, your identity, and a small child in order to get one. And you didn't get any of those things back until you handed it back in. Enforcement was possible. They could have taken names when you got your salt and pepper shaker. Or they could have gone for enrollment. And enrollment would have been, hey, we just don't steal salt and pepper shakers. There's plenty of things on airplanes that people don't steal, even though it's unlikely they're going to get caught. And the reason they don't is they're not the kind of people who do that sort of thing. Well, he picked the third path, which was turning it into a publicity gimmick and changing the salt and pepper shakers to a plastic, though shiny, construction. And over the years, they've done things like stopped using them and replacing them with something else, and then, due to, quote, an outcry, putting back the, quote, original salt and pepper shakers, and it's now just a publicity stunt. But that's neither here nor there. The key to the whole thing is this. In our industrial mindset, in our economies, it is so much easier to focus on enforcement instead of enrollment. Because enforcement is up to the person in charge. That's what it is to be in charge, to be able to enforce things. And so public school teachers are in the enforcement business. And maitre d's at restaurants enforce their policies. That enforcement is our instinct because it's something that is under our control, whereas enrollment is never under our control. Enrollment is under the control of the person who we can somehow persuade or cajole or create an environment where they decide how they are going to behave or not behave. So, for example, there's very little top-down enforcement about not having your cell phone on at a typical Broadway show. 
Very satisfying moment in the theater. We all know how annoying it can be when someone's texting during a show. The actors hate it most of all. So Broadway legend Patty LuPone took matters into her own hands, snatching away the offending phone. People are alerted that they should turn their phones off, but they turn their phones off because they don't want to be the victim of social shaming, not because some top-down authority is going to kick them out. That's different from, say, the Alamo Drafthouse, a movie theater that has taken it upon themselves to enforce a ban on texting and phones. So excuse me for using my phone in USA, United States of America, where you are free to text in a theater. And when they announce that ban, people cheer because they're looking for a centralized enforcement mechanism because sometimes the social shaming thing just doesn't work. Well, all this came up because of this question from a hardworking public school teacher. Hi, Seth. Jeb Dickerson from Berryville, Virginia. I am a middle school teacher. I teach eighth grade civics. And I have been uh, consuming everything you've put out for the last decade or more. And I'm super grateful, like most people who, uh, who are on this journey with you. And I guess I'm, I'm calling in today and asking really about enrollment, because I, I do agree. Uh, enrollment is the key. We learn when we want to learn. And so the real challenge for me and, and at the heart of my question is this. How do we get 13-year-olds to be enrolled when they exist within a compulsory system? They all know that they have to go to school. They all feel about school the same way we all did. And the question about how to get them to shift their perspective or their posture towards learning is maybe the most urgent question I can think of. Um, thankfully, I work in a district that is starting that shift towards a much more project-based, student-centered way of, of teaching and learning, and I'm grateful. And I, as an individual, made that turn long ago. In fact, I started as a teacher with that approach in mind. And and the key here is that, like, that matters, but it's not enough. It's not enough to get 13-year-old students who have the added dynamic of all the hormones and peer pressures and parental pressure and the you know, the college track and all of that to think about and worry about. So how, um, how do we get young students to really begin recognizing that school can be and should be for something different than maybe they've been led to believe? And how do we get them to enroll on this journey in a way that gets us where we want to go? And, um, and I guess the last thought is the smallest viable audience. I'm going to get 10% of my kids, I know it, I know I am, I always do, that really, really thrive in a learning environment because they want to learn, not because they feel like it's going to be on the test, right? So, but that still leaves out 90% of the kids. And so I don't have any illusions that I'm going to get them all, but how do we begin to turn that corner a bit quicker so we get more of them along the way? Thank you so much for everything you do. First, Thank you for the work you're doing. Civics, so important. And to show up for 13-year-olds day after day, year after year, to teach them what it is to be citizens, my hat goes off to you. Thank you. But what you are highlighting is 
that you work in a system where enrollment is viewed as an option, a nice-to-have, something that makes it easier. Maybe if 10% of the kids just naturally, organically show up as enrolled, it goes better. But we spend so much of our time on the enforcement regime instead when we understand the real problem, which is it's super hard to enforce things on teenagers. It's super hard to enforce things on large portions of the population. That most bureaucracies, most top-down organizations, most bosses are really focused on enforcement. How do I get the butts in the seats? How do I measure the throughput on the assembly line? How do I deduct points from people who don't comply? And it runs really deep. Years ago, I used to help run a summer camp for underprivileged kids in June up in Canada. And we only had three or four days with these kids, not enough time to learn their names, certainly not enough time to be able to dig deep about who they were and where they were going and what they wanted. And what we discovered, because we weren't in charge, the teachers were in charge, is that if you simply said, points will be deducted when you discovered a kid acting up, they would quickly fall in line. They didn't even know what the points were for. They didn't even know what they were going to win. But simply the threat that an authority figure was going to deduct points got people to change their behavior. And that's a shame because it doesn't last very long and it's not very leveraged, and it doesn't create the kind of culture that produces really good work. That when we think about scientists who have done great work, when we think about organizations that have had breakthroughs, or designers, or coaches, or teachers, it's always because they figured out how to earn enrollment, because they realized that people who are doing something because they want to do way more than people who are doing something because they have to. And so the purpose of this rant, short as it is, is to highlight for people, to move way up on your priority list, the simple question, are we spending our cycles? Are we spending today? Are we spending these resources looking for new ways to create enforcement regimes, new ways to clarify the rules and the punishments? Or are we brainstorming and looking for new ways to earn enrollment, to basically be able to say to people, oh, it looks like you're trying to go there. It looks like you're trying to do that. Well, if you want to go there, have you considered that this might be a good way to get there? My hunch, particularly for a topic like civics, which is so broad and can be looked at with so many facets compared to, say, fractions, something like Civics, it feels to me like earning enrollment by offering three, four, five, six, seven different paths through the curriculum, by creating heroes, by focusing on status roles and affiliation, by showing up in a way that the people would miss you if you were gone. That sort of enrollment is super difficult if you're coming from an industrialized enforcement mindset. However, everywhere else in our lives, everywhere else in our lives. People aren't doing stuff because they have to. They're doing things because they want to. That's the hard part, and it deserves our attention. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some great questions from previous episodes. But first, 
Here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Here we go. Hey, Seth, this is Jeremiah from Nebraska. Uh, and what I've gathered over the years of listening to your podcast, reading your books, is that uh, developing a practice is a big deal. And it's, it's what I've wanted to do for many years now and haven't been able to get it to stick. So... I've made excuses to myself that it's fear of the unknown or maybe I don't know what I really want or I'm just too tired after work. But none of those excuses have helped me figure out what the problem actually is. And my goal is to develop a good practice that I stick to for a long time. So I'm here to ask, how do I figure out what the problem is? How do I figure out why? I can't stick to these practices that I set out to, to do. And uh, once I figure that out, maybe we can make more progress. Uh, thanks, Seth, for taking the time to listen to my question. Take care. Thank you for this, Jeremiah. It's a great question, but it might be a question that is about the wrong thing, which is that it's easy to imagine that we don't exactly know what we want that we don't exactly know what our work is to be. Of course not. If you had asked me in 1990 or 2000 or 2010 if the arc of my work was to lead me to where I am today, it's really hard for me to imagine that I would have picked exactly what I'm doing right now. We aren't given a bright north star. It is culturally based. It is technologically based. It is something that happens over time. Van Gogh was not born to be an impressionist oil painter. That is where he ended up. We end up as the result of a whole bunch of decisions that we make without exactly knowing where we are going. So the purpose of your practice is not to somehow unveil the thing that has been within you all along. The practice should be the simplest, smallest thing that you know you can consistently 
rely on. We have a practice of eating lunch every day. We have a practice of going to bed every night. Some people have a practice of having a martini or a glass of wine after work. These are habits, habits that add up to something over time or that simply keep us where we are. And so the practice that I am talking about here could be as simple as every single day, I'm going to write a blog post for someone else. Every single day, I'm going to learn a new thing to do with a computer, whether it's coding or using an existing piece of software. Every single day, I'm going to find somebody somewhere who needs to be heard, and I'm going to listen to them. Drip by drip by drip. The purpose of the practice in this sense is to get us past the decision of, should I do this today? No, I do this every day. I brush my teeth every morning whether I feel like it or not. I have a blog post every day whether I feel like it or not. Because if we can build a generous habit into our life, the generosity of that, whether it's about learning, teaching, connecting, turning on lights, discovering, that habit leads to new frontiers. So build that practice. And if you pick something too small, then you can make it bigger. But if you pick something too big, then you're asking too much. So the practice, that's where we begin. Hi, Seth. This is Carol from Washington State. One of my goals as a local elected official is to bring more diversity into our government-funded career fields. And this morning, I was reading your book again, The Practice, and there was something you wrote about culture, and I realized it may be more about changing the culture in these higher wage career fields, like firefighters, police, public works, department heads, things like that. Um, so my question for you is, what do you see as the best way to make change in this type of environment? You know, is it policies? Is it I'm withholding funds unless you make these changes? Uh, but I, I would like to hear your perspective on trying to bring everyone on board, um, maybe more of a group wanting to change, like more of a kumbaya moment, um, if that's possible. I know I, I appreciate your insights and I love your perspective. So I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. Thanks, Seth. Thank you for this, Carol. There's some really important ideas in what you are describing. And what I have discovered in thinking about culture and learning about how humans make decisions is they're almost always based on one of two things, affiliation or status. And in some of the professions you're talking about, at least in the communities I'm aware of, things like firemen and policemen, et cetera, there is a very strong element of affiliation. They call it a uniform for a reason. It's a uniform. We're all in it together. This is how we do things around here. And one of the things that flies in the face of persistent age-old systems is that they were built without regard for things like diversity, without regard for things like inclusion. And now you are showing up to make a change happen, which is fantastic. But you're not going to get there with everyone's approval because part of what you're doing is trying to change the existing system of affiliation. And the new system... The new systems will bring new affiliation about who the we are when we talk about how we do things around here, and also new status roles, who's up, who's down, who's winning, who's losing. So if you say to a large group of people, maybe who are part of a union, maybe who have civil 
service standing. We're going to change things and you're going to move down in status and we're going to change your affiliation. It's not surprising that people, even people who mean well, push back on that. Well, the alternative is to bypass the people who are in the status quo and simply create parallel processes. Parallel processes in which new people get new status and new affiliation. And over time, their status grows and their affiliation grows. That when we bring in a group of people who are, I don't know, a SWAT team, a chosen group of leaders, people who get different sorts of access, different sorts of recognition, well, over time, it changes the culture because the we begins to change. Because some people from the old guard will want the status and affiliation that is going to the folks who are new and will choose to join them. And some people may choose to leave, and that's okay. Because the status quo is the status quo because it's good at sticking around. And you're not going to get the status quo to eagerly applaud the change you want to make, even if you can rationally describe why it's better for everyone. Instead, what we have the chance to do is shine a light on people who are doing the things we want done, rewarding new systems, giving people who are part of new circles more resources, more approval, more leverage, because that is how culture changes. It changes when we celebrate the culture we seek to build. Good luck with this work. Hey, Seth. Josh here from Canada. I've been thinking a lot lately about the idea of leaving a legacy and building things, putting work out there that outlasts us. At the same time, I've been reading through some of the archives of your blog, and I came across a post from 2006 where you were inviting people to a face-to-face -face presentation that you were giving. And it stuck out to me how much different it seems like you would approach that goal of giving a large group of people a presentation now than you did back in 2006 thinking specifically about your conversations about the Zoom revolution or your post on Medium about banning the lecture from the classroom. You've been a leader during the rise and fall of many tools for showing up as leaders and communicators, and you've taught and led people through using many of those tools. So I have three overlapping questions within that. The first is, are there any things that you have taught or written about over the years that you think are less relevant or useful today? The second is, what are some things that you've taught that have stood the test of time through the waves of change that you've seen in tech and in society? And then the third is, you've talked about writing books as a way to communicate something in a stickier way than maybe a blog post or a video tends to be. Do you think books are the most sticky way that we can bring our message? Or if not, what other ways do you think we can ship our work so that we can maximize the impact it has on the culture years into the future? Thank you for this, Josh. You're right. I've been on the bleeding edge of media since 1976 when I was 16 and went on the internet for the first time. And I built things on Prodigy and AOL and on DVD and on lots of platforms that are long, long gone. And one of the things I've learned is the more specific I get about winning on a platform, the more likely it is I'm going to make a mistake. But there are some general principles that persist the ones of status and affiliation, which I just mentioned, and the idea of permission, of the scarcity of attention and trust, and earning the ability to engage with somebody tomorrow. So as we see all the swirl and changes around us, for me, the biggest things to remember are, one, you're not here to please the person who built the platform 
and two, short-term success that comes from hacking tactics rarely is as resilient as earning conversation, the benefit of the doubt, trust, respect, and permission to talk to people. And by coming back to that again and again, the idea of the smallest viable audience, of leaning into the people who are here for the message and not worrying about hustling to be on the homepage of anything, that combination feels resilient to me. It worked for a hundred years of the newspaper and it worked for the seven years that AOL mattered a lot. So yeah, I remember running, like literally running next to Steve Case, the CEO of AOL. I am not a runner, but they had a partner conference and I got up at six o'clock in the morning because I figured Steve would be there for the group run. And I did my best to keep up with him for probably half a mile just so that I could maybe get my company on the homepage of AOL for an hour. And as I lay on the side of the road panting, I realized that that sort of driven approach to hustle, to getting a thing, a shining a light, that doesn't work in the long run. What works in the long run are the things that have worked in human culture for a very long time. Who trusts you? Who gives you the benefit of the doubt? Who is choosing to pay attention? And what will they tell their friends? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it. First, check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.